Book three, chapter twenty three of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book three, chapter twenty three. It was the beginning of April. The gorse was fast extending its golden empire over the commons. On the sunny slopes of the copses, primroses were breaking through the hazel roots and beginning to gleam along the edges of the river. On the grass commons between Muirwall and Mile End, the birches rose like green clouds against the browns and purples of the still leafless oaks and beeches. The birds were twittering and building. Every day Robert was on the lookout for the swallows, or listening for the first notes of the nightingale amid the bare spring coverts. But the spring was less perfectly delightful to him than it might have been, for Catherine was away. Mrs. Laban, who was to have come south to them in February, was attacked by bronchitis instead at Burwood, and forbidden to move, even to a warmer climate. In March, Catherine, feeling restless and anxious about her mother, and thinking it hard that Agnes should have all the nursing and responsibility, tore herself from her man and her baby, and went north to Windale for a fortnight, leaving Robert forlorn. Now, however, she was in London, whither she had gone for a few days on her way home, to meet Rose and to shop. Robert's opinion was that all women, even St. Elizabeth's, have somewhere rooted in them an inordinate partiality for shopping. Otherwise, why should that operation take four or five mortal days? Surely with a little energy one might buy up the whole of London in twelve hours. However, Catherine lingered, and as her purchases were made, Robert Crosty supposed it must be all Rose's fault. He believed that Rose spent a great deal too much on dress. Catherine's letters, of course, were full of her sister. Rose, she said, had come back from Berlin handsomer than ever, and playing, she supposed, magnificently. At any rate, the letters which followed her in shoals from Berlin flattered her to the skies, and during the three months preceding her return, Joachim himself had taken her as a pupil and given her unusual attention. "'And now, of course,' wrote Catherine, "'she is desperately disappointed that Mamma and Agnes cannot join her in town, as she had hoped. She does her best, I know, poor child, to conceal it, and to feel as she ought about Mamma. But I can see that the idea of an indefinite time at Burwood is intolerable to her. As to Berlin, I think she has enjoyed it, but she talks very scornfully of German schwarmerei and German women, and she tells the oddest stories of her professors.' With one or two of them, she seems to have been in a state of war from the beginning. But some of them, my dear Robert, I am persuaded were just simply in love with her. I don't—no, I never shall believe that independent, exciting student's life is good for a girl. But I never say so to Rose. When she forgets to be irritable and to feel that the world is going against her, she is often very sweet to me, and I can't bear there should be any conflict. His next day's letter contained the following. Are you properly amused, sir, at your wife's performances in town? Our three concerts you have heard all about. I still can't get over them. I go about haunted by the seriousness, the life-and-death interest people throw into music. It is astonishing. And outside, as we got into our hansom, such sights and sounds, such starved, fierce-looking men, such ghastly women. But since then Rose has been taking me into society. Yesterday afternoon, after I wrote to you, we went to see Rose's artistic friends, the Pearsons, with whom she was staying last summer, and to-day we have even called on Lady Charlotte Winstay. As to Mrs. Pearson, 
I never saw such an odd bundle of ribbons and rags and queer embroideries as she looked when we called. However, Rose says that, for an aesthete, she despises them now herself, Mrs. Pearson has wonderful taste, and that her wallpapers and her gowns, if I only understood them, are not the least like those of other ascetic persons, but very recherche, which may be. She talked to Rose of nothing but acting, especially of Madame de Forêt. No one, according to her, has anything to do with an actress's private life, or ought to take it into account. But, Robert, dear, an actress is a woman, and has a soul. Then, Lady Charlotte, you would have laughed at our entree. We found she was in town, and went on her day, as she has asked Rose to do. The room was rather dark. None of these London rooms seemed to me to have any light and air in them. The butler got our names wrong, and I marched in first, more shy than I have ever been before in my life. Lady Charlotte had two gentlemen with her. She evidently did not know me in the least. She stood staring at me with her eyeglass on, and her cap so crooked I could think of nothing but a wish to put it straight. Then Rose followed, and in a few minutes it seemed to me as though it were Rose who were hostess, talking to the two gentlemen and being kind to Lady Charlotte. I am sure everybody in the room was amused by her self-possession, Lady Charlotte included. The gentlemen stared at her a great deal, and Lady Charlotte paid her one or two compliments on her looks, which I thought she would not have ventured to pay to any one in her own circle. We stayed about half an hour. One of the gentlemen was, I believe, a member of the government, an under-secretary for something, but he and Rose and Lady Charlotte talked again of nothing but musicians and actors. It is strange that politicians should have time to know so much of these things. The other gentleman reminded me of Hotspur's Popinjay. I think now I made out that he wrote for the newspapers, but at the moment I should have felt it insulting to accuse him of anything so humdrum as an occupation in life. He discovered somehow that I had an interest in the church, and he asked me, leaning back in his chair and lisping, whether I really thought the church could still totter on a while in the rural districts. He was informed her condition was so very death-wet. Then I laughed outright, and found my tongue. Perhaps his next article on the church will have a few facts in it. I did my best to put some into him. Rose at last looked round at me, astonished. But he did not dislike me, I think. I was not impertinent to him, husband mine. If I might have described just one of your days to his high mightiness, there is no need to tell you, I think, whether I did or not. Then, when we got up to go, Lady Charlotte asked Rose to stay with her. Rose explained why she couldn't, and Lady Charlotte pitied her dreadfully for having a family, and the under-secretary said that it was one's first duty in life to trample on one's relations, and that he hoped nothing would prevent his hearing her play some time later in the year. Rose said very decidedly she should be in town for the winter. Lady Charlotte said she would have an evening specially for her, and as I said nothing, we got away at last. The letter of the following day recorded a little adventure. I got Rose to come with me to the National Gallery on our way to her dressmaker. We were standing before Raphael's Vigil of the Night, when suddenly I saw Rose, who was looking away towards the door into the long gallery, turn perfectly white. I followed her eye, and there, in the doorway, disappearing, I am almost certain, was Mr. Langham. One cannot mistake his walk or his profile. Before I could say a word, Rose had walked away to another wall of pictures, and when we joined again we did not speak of it. Did he see us, I wonder, and purposely avoid us? Something made me think so. 
Oh, I wish I could believe she had forgotten him. I am certain she would laugh me to angry scorn if I mentioned him. But there she sits by the fire now, while I am writing, quite drooping and pale, because she thinks I am not noticing. If she did but love me a little more, it must be my fault, I know. Yes, as you say, Burwood may as well be shut up or let. My dear, dear father. Robert could imagine the sigh with which Catherine had laid down her pen. Dear tender soul, with all its world-world fidelities and pieties, pure and unimpaired. He raised the signature to his lips. Next day Catherine came back to him. Robert had no words too opprobrious for the widowed condition from which her return had rescued him. It seemed to Catherine, however, that life had been very full and keen with him since her departure. He lingered with her after supper, vowing that his club boys might make what hay in the study they pleased. He was going to tell her the news, whatever happened. "'I told you of my two dinners at the hall. The first was just tete-a-tete with the squire. Oh, and Mrs. Darcy, of course.' I'm always forgetting her, poor little thing, which is most ungrateful of me. A pathetic life, that, Catherine. She seems to me, in her odd way, perpetually hungering for affection, for praise. No doubt, if she got them, she wouldn't know what to do with them. She would just touch and leave them as she does everything else. Her talk and she are both as light and wandering as Thistledown. But still, meanwhile, she hungers and is never satisfied. There seems to be something peculiarly antipathetic in her to the squire. I can't make it out. He's sometimes quite brutal to her when she's more inconsequent than usual. I often wonder if she goes on living with him. Catherine made some indignant comment. Yes, said Robert, musing. Yes, it is bad. But Catherine thought his tone might have been more unqualified, and marvelled again at the curious lenity of judgment he had always shown of late towards Mr. Wendover and all his judgments of himself and others were generally so quick, so uncompromising. On the second occasion we had Freke and Dashwood, naming two well-known English antiquarians, very learned, very jealous, and very snuffy, altogether too genuine, as poor mother used to say of those old chairs we got for the dining-room. But afterwards, when we were all smoking in the library, the squire came out of his shell and talked. I never heard him more brilliant. He paused a moment his bright eyes looking far away from her, as though fixed on the scene he was describing. "'Such a mind,' he said at last, with a long breath. "'Such a memory! Catherine, my book has been making great strides since you left. With Mr. Wendover to go to, all the problems are simplified. One is saved, all false starts, all beating about the bush. What a piece of luck it was that put one down beside such a guide, such a living storehouse of knowledge!' He spoke in a glow of energy and enthusiasm. Catherine sat looking at him wistfully, her grey eyes crossed by many varying shades of memory and feeling. At last his look met hers, and the animation of it softened at once, grew gentle. "'Do you think I am making knowledge too much of a god just now, Madonna mine?' he said, throwing himself down beside her. "'I have been full of qualms myself.' The squire excites one so, makes one feel as though intellect, accumulation, were the whole of life. But I struggle against it, I do. I go on, for instance, trying to make the squire do his social duties, behave like a human. Catherine could not help smiling at his tone. Well? she inquired. He shook his head ruthfully. The squire is a tough customer, and men of sixty-seven with strong wills are, I suppose. 
At any rate, he's like one of the Thurston Trout, sees through all my manoeuvres. But one piece of news would astonish you, Catherine. And he sprang up to deliver it with effect. Henslow is dismissed. Henslow dismissed? Catherine sat properly amazed while Robert told the story. The dismissal of Henslow indeed represented the price which Mr. Wendover had been so far willing to pay for Ellesmere's society. Some quid pro quo there must be, that he was prepared to admit, considering their relative positions as squire and parson. But as Robert shrewdly suspected, not one of his wiles so far had imposed on the master of Muirbel. He had his own sarcastic smiles over them, and over Ellesmere's pastoral naivety in general. The evidences of the young rector's power and popularity were, however, on the whole, pleasant to Mr. Wendover. If Ellesmere had his will with all the rest of the world, Mr. Wendover knew perfectly well who it was that at the present moment had his will with Ellesmere. He found a great piquancy in this shaping of a mind more intellectually eager and pliant than any he had yet come across among younger men. Perpetual food, too, for his sense of irony in the intellectual contradictions wherein Ellesmere's developing ideas and information were now, according to the squire, involving him at every turn. "'His religious foundations are gone already, if he did but know it,' Mr. Wendover grimly remarked to himself one day about this time. "'But he will take so long finding it out that the results are not worth speculating on.' Cynically assured, therefore, at bottom of his own power with his ebullient nature, the squire was quite prepared to make external concessions— or, as we have said, to pay his price. It annoyed him that when Ellesmere would press for allotment land, or a new institute, or a better supply of water for the village, it was not open to him merely to give carte blanche, and refer his petitioner to Henslow. Robert's opinion of Henslow, and Henslow's now more cautious but still incessant hostility to the rector, were patent at last even to the squire. The situation was worrying and wasted time. It must be changed. So one morning he met Ellesmere with a bundle of letters in his hand, calmly informed him that help So one morning he met Ellesmere with a bundle of letters in his hand, calmly informed him that Henslow had been sent about his business, and that it would be a kindness if Mr Ellesmere would do him the favour of looking through some applications for the vacant post just received. Ellesmere, much taken by surprise, felt at first as it was natural for an oversensitive, over scrupulous man to feel. His enemy had been given into his hand, and instead of victory he could only realise that he had brought a man to ruin. "'He has a wife and children,' he said quickly, looking at the squire. "'Of course I have pensioned him,' replied the squire impatiently. "'Otherwise I imagine he would be hanging round our necks to the end of the chapter.' There was something in the careless indifference of the tone which sent a shiver through Ellesmere. After all, this man had served the squire for fifteen years— it was not Mr. Wendover who had much to complain of. No one with a conscience could have held out a finger to keep Henslow in his post. But though Ellesmere took the letters and promised to give them his best attention, as soon as he got home he made himself irrationally miserable over the matter. It was not his fault that, from the moment of his arrival in the parish, Henslow had made him the target of a vulgar and embittered hostility, and so far as he had struck out in return, it had been for the protection of persecuted and defenceless creatures. But all the same he could not get the thought of the man's collapse and humiliation out of his mind. How at his age was he to find other work, and how was he to endure life at Muirwell without his comfortable house, his smart gig, 
his easy command of spirits, and the cringing of the farmers. Tormented by the sordid misery of the situation, almost as though it had been his own, Ellesmere ran down impulsively in the evening to the agent's house. Could nothing be done to assure the man that he was not really his enemy, and that anything the parson's influence and the parson's money could do to help him to a more decent life, a work which offered fewer temptations and less power over human beings, should be done? It need hardly be said that the visit was a complete failure. Henslow, who was drinking hard, no sooner heard Ellesmere's voice in the little hall than he dashed open the door which separated them, and in a paroxysm of drunken rage hurled at Ellesmere all the venomous stuff he had been garnering up for months against some such occasion. The vilest abuse, the foulest charges, there was nothing that the maddened sot, now fairly unmasked, denied himself. Ellesmere, pale and erect, tried to make himself heard. In vain. Henslow was physically incapable of taking in a word. At last the agent, beside himself, made a rush. His three untidy children, who had been hanging open-mouthed in the background, set up a howl of terror, and his Scotch wife, more pinched and sour than ever, who had been so far a gloomy spectator of the scene, interposed. "'Have done ye ye,' she said solemnly, putting out a long bony arm in front of her husband. "'Ulla, oh, look, you're up the brandy where you'll near find it if ye pull the house doon.' "'Now, sir,' turning to Ellesmere, "'would ye just be going?' "'Ye mean it well, I dare say, but if you'd done your work, and ye mun't leave it.' And she motioned him out, not without a sombre dignity. Ellesmere went home, crestfallen. The enthusiast is a good deal too apt to underestimate the stubbornness of moral fact, and these rebuffs have their stern uses for character. "'They intend to go on living here, I am told,' Ellesmere said, as he wound up the story. And as Henslow is still churchwarden, he may do us a world of mischief yet. However, I think that his wife will keep him in order. No doubt vengeance will be sweet to her as to him, but she has a shrewd eye, poor soul, to the squire's remittances. This is a wretched business, and I don't take a man's hate easily, Catherine, though it may be a folly to say so. Catherine was irresponsive. The Old Testament element in her found a lawful satisfaction in Henslow's fall, and a wicked man's hatred, according to her, mattered only to himself. The squire's conduct, on the other hand, made her uneasily proud. To her, naturally, it simply meant that he was falling under Robert's spell. So much the better for him. But... End of Book 3, Chapter 23